Welcome, everyone, to the latest global edition of the Regulation Tomorrow podcast. I'm Simon Lovegrove, Global Director of Financial Services Knowledge at North Rose Fulbright. And in this month's podcast, I'm joined by a number of international colleagues who will share their insights into the latest developments regarding crypto asset regulation. So without further ado, let's now join our financial services partner in Hong Kong, Itelka Bogardi. Itelka, it's great that you're here. Let me start by asking you this first question. In terms of developments in the Hong Kong crypto asset space, the most significant one recently must be the HKMA discussion paper on crypto assets and stable coins. For those listening who are not familiar with the paper, can you give them the headlines? Hi, Simon. Thanks for having me. So it's been a really busy uh, few weeks for the digital asset sector in Hong Kong in terms of guidance released by the regulator. The first one was the one that you've just mentioned, which is the HKMA's discussion paper on crypto assets and stable coins, which was released in mid-January. And there's also a summary of it on our Regulation Tomorrow blog. So the paper essentially sets out the HKMA's views on how to expand Hong Kong's regulatory framework for crypto assets. This paper is one in a, in a growing list of various notes and research reports that regulators and supranational bodies across the world have issued on this topic. And it's really been prompted by Hong Kong and, and the region witnessing significant growth in the market cap of crypto assets, as well as increasing investment in and usage by institutional as well as retail players. The focus of this particular paper is on stable coins. Um, Just to take you through some of the key points here, the paper sets out what the HKMA considers to be the key risks posed by stable coins, as well as thinking about the guiding principles of of the regulatory regime that they have in mind. One of the key points that they make is that they feel that there's a perception that some stable coins may be developing into a widely acceptable means of payment i.e. what we refer to payment-related stablecoins. The concern is that these payment-related stablecoins have a higher potential for being incorporated into the mainstream financial system or even as a day-to-day commercial and, and economic activity by way of being used as a means of payment. So in light of these concerns, the HKMA is now considering expanding the scope of Hong Kong's main payment and store value facilities related piece of legislation, or actually introducing a completely new piece of uh, legislation to to focus on activities relating to these types of stable coins. Um, the, The relevant activities that the HKMA thinks may fall within the regulatory scope are described in this paper. And essentially, they include issuing, creating or destroying stable coins, managing the reserve assets, you know, that are there to ensure the stabilization of the stablecoin value, and also storing the private keys providing access to these stablecoins. The attention of the HKMA in this paper is on asset-linked stablecoins, for example, those that are linked to a single fiat currency rather than algorithm-based stablecoins. This is on the basis that currently existing stablecoins are mostly this asset-linked and predominantly packed to the US dollar, And compared to these algorithm-based stablecoins, asset-linked stablecoins appear to be more prevalent in the market and more likely to be perceived as having the potential to develop into a widely used and accepted means of payment. They haven't ruled out the possibility of regulating other types of stablecoins, 
in the future. So what are they thinking in terms of regulatory requirements? So um, they're proposing a risk-based approach on the basis that it's common for multiple entities to be involved in the sort of life cycle uh, of stable coins arrangements. And these entities would be subject to part or all of these regulatory requirements that are under contemplation. So this includes authorization, the maintenance of financial resources and liquidity requirements, maintenance and management of reserves, backing, backing assets, and of course, proper implementation of AML rules. Um, and one significant point that was made in the paper is that uh, a foreign company or group cannot carry out these proposed regulated activities in Hong Kong or actively market from offshore to Hong Kong. Instead, they will need to uh, incorporate a Hong Kong company. And that would be the entity that then needs to apply to the HKMA for a license. Uh, so a mere branch um, or a sort of rep office uh, will not be regarded as meeting the requirement. Um, and so, this is basically aimed at uh, enabling the HKMA to ex exercise effective regulation on relevant entities, which is quite interesting because many banks here, for example, operate under a branch uh, arrangement. Thanks, Atelka. Um, how has the market reacted to the discussion paper? Yeah, so um, I think it's pretty clear that it's merely a question of when and how rather than if stable coins will be regulated. I think the, the, the initial market reaction has mainly centered around how this proposed regime will interact with existing or proposed regulatory regimes in Hong Kong, especially the planned virtual asset service provider licensing and supervisory regime that the uh, Hong Kong securities regulator, the SFC, has spearheaded for introduction in this current legislative session. So to give you an example, um, that proposed regime would currently cover virtual asset exchanges, including those um, that is stable coins. So there's clearly a potential overlap here. But for example, a custody solution would not be covered by the SFC virtual asset service provider regime. So query why custody of a stable coin will potentially be regulated under the HKMA proposal, um, but not for other types of digital assets. So there's some work to do on this. Um, the other item that, that will or has garnered commentary is, is the need to come uh, onshore for licensing purposes, what, what we just discussed previously, and what type of cross-border offer of services will still be possible without triggering a licensing requirement. Thanks. I know it's been a busy few weeks in Hong Kong. Uh, could you tell our listeners what else has been happening? Yeah, so it's been a really busy two weeks, and this, this next one is actually particularly relevant for those listeners who are, you know, licensed banks or other types of, of licensed uh, intermediaries in Hong Kong. So following on the discussion paper on stable coins that we discussed, the HKMA and the SFC released a joint circular to Hong Kong licensed intermediaries who want to engage in virtual asset related activities. This is quite a long and, and very extensive paper, so I'll just cover sort of the main line items here. Essentially, the, one of the main points of the circular is the, that the SFC and the HKMA are of the view that additional investor protection measures are required in connection with the distribution of virtual asset-related products. 
So uh, what does that mean? So selling restrictions, so except for a very limited suite of products, virtual asset related products, which are considered complex products should only be offered to professional investors. For example, an overseas virtual asset non-derivative ETF would very likely be considered a complex product. And so it should be restricted to professional investors. There's gonna be a requirement for a virtual asset knowledge test. So except for institutional professional investors or qualified corporate professional investors, intermediaries will need to assess whether clients have knowledge of investing in virtual assets or virtual asset related products prior to affecting a transaction on their behalf. If they don't possess this knowledge, they can only proceed if to do so would be acting in the client's best interest um, and they've provided training and so on. There's requirements to ensure clients have sufficient net worth to be able to assume the risks. And there's various criteria mentioned in the circular whether a client can be regarded as having knowledge. Um, as I mentioned before, a very limited suite of virtual asset related derivative products that are traded on regulated exchanges specified by the SFC. Um, and uh, in the case of exchange traded virtual asset derivatives funds, where they're authorized or approved for offering to retail investors in a, in a, by regulating a designated jurisdiction, for these types of products, the professional investor only restriction will not apply. There's also guidance in related to what are called virtual asset related dealing services. So this is essentially a broker dealer type of role. Again, you know, they're ratcheting up investor protection measures. Um, they've stated that they consider it necessary to require Hong Kong licensed intermediaries to partner only with SFC licensed virtual asset trading platforms for the provision of virtual asset dealing services. And bearing in mind, there's only one such platform at the moment. And whether that's by introducing clients to the platform for direct trading or establishing an omnibus account with a platform. Again, these services should only be provided to professional investors. Uh, and very interestingly, intermediaries are expected to comply with all the regulatory requirements imposed by the SOC and the HKMA when providing virtual asset dealing services, irrespective of whether or not the virtual assets involved our securities or not. So we've clearly moved away from this analysis of does it fall within the current securities regime or not. Um, and again, these services can only be provided to the intermediaries existing clients to which they already provide dealing services, i.e. you know, brokerage activities. Um, so there's going to be additional terms and conditions imposed on Hong Kong intermediaries to provide these types of virtual asset dealing services um, in, in terms of prescribed terms and conditions. And these will track the SFC's framework for virtual asset trading platforms that are currently in place. Um, for example, what one restriction will be that intermediaries should only permit clients to deposit or withdraw fiat currencies from their accounts and should not allow the deposit or withdrawal of, of virtual assets so as to minimize the risks associated with the transfer of virtual assets. Just one final point. So at the same time as the joint guidance, the HKMA separately released further guidance aimed at banks only in relation to additional controls it requires in relation to Hong Kong licensed banks, virtual asset related activities, namely in relation to prudential supervision, AML financial prime risk and investor protection. 
the, the good news is that, you know, they said, look, we, we don't currently intend to uh, prohibit banks from incurring financial exposures to virtual assets, whether that's through investments in virtual assets, lending against virtual assets as collateral, or allowing customers to use credit cards or other payment services to acquire virtual assets. Um, this is on the premise that banks have put in place adequate risk management controls and sufficient oversight by senior management. And there's a little bit more detail around sort of the risk management control aspect of it. Um, there is a, a more lengthy section on effective AML and CFT policies, procedures and controls to manage um, money laundering risks, um, taking into account relevant guidance by the FATF and the HKMA. So that's quite helpful. So that addresses both customers engaging in virtual asset related activities through their bank accounts and also banking relationships with virtual asset service providers. We all know a lot of virtual asset service providers had a lot of trouble opening bank accounts in Hong Kong, mainly because of the, the perceived uh, money laundering risk. So now we have some, some further guidance from the HKMA on this, which is very helpful. Uh, it talks about um, the risk assessment that should be con conducted in line with a risk-based approach, um, what additional customer due diligence should be, uh, uh, measures should be taken. Uh, and they give some really good examples around, you know, what information should be gathered to understand the nature of the service provider's business, how to construct a risk profile, um, you know, determining whether the, the provider is licensed in Hong Kong or another jurisdiction, what type of regulatory framework it's subject to, and then also assessing the AML and CFT controls that the virtual asset service provider has in place. So all in all, a very, very busy two weeks for the industry and actually with quite far-reaching ramifications. Thanks, Atelka. That's great. That's a really helpful update for our listeners on what's going on in Hong Kong. We now move to Australia, where I'm joined by Jeremy Wickens, a partner in our Melbourne office. Jeremy, always great to have you with us. And I know there's always a lot going on in the crypto space in Australia. Could I start with the following question? Cryptocurrency might still be considered a volatile asset, but that hasn't stopped the Australian government and some of the country's largest financial players entering the space. What are some of the things you're seeing in the Australian market at the moment? Yeah, thanks, Simon. Great to be here. Um, and we are seeing significant activity in the cryptocurrency space in Australia. There are really a large number of businesses now engaged in every part of the crypto value chain. Literally every week we're getting inquiries from new clients who are working on providing new crypto exchanges, crypto brokerage services, etc. But the next big thing in Australia will be listed exchange traded funds with cryptocurrency as their underlying asset. We know there are at least four players with ETF exchange traded fund products that are ready to launch. And they're looking at listing their ETFs on the ASX, which is Australia's best known exchange, or the CBOE, Australia Exchange, which is the new name for the, uh, the old CHI-X Australia Exchange. And we're actively working for one client on getting two crypto-based ETFs listed now. 
And the attraction of a, a crypto-based ETF is that custody of the underlying crypto assets is very carefully managed by the, the fund manager. The funds have cold storage protocols, making them much less likely to suffer the sorts of losses that have occurred when crypto exchanges have been attacked, as we've, we've seen around the world. It'll also be very easy to get exposure to crypto with investors only really needing a few clicks in their regular online broker accounts, rather than needing to navigate acquiring their own digital wallet and the other formalities of purchasing crypto directly. So we think the ETF format is going to have a lot of appeal for investors who want to be into crypto, but have found it challenging to do so to date. However, that process for getting any ETF products listed for, for all of these listing hopefuls has been really drawn out, to say the least. Starting about a year ago, the exchanges began considering whether there were any regulatory hurdles to their listing ETFs with crypto as the underlying. Now, wherever the exchanges got to that with, with that analysis, midway through last year, our corporate regulator, ASIC, weighed in and said that listing rule changes would be required to permit listing crypto-based ETFs. And the exchanges are, are regulated by ASIC themselves. And so whatever the exchanges' views on the matter after ASIC led down that path, they had to follow. Um, ASIC then went through a consultation process and published its policy position on what crypto-based ETFs products would be appropriate at all and what changes would be required to the listing rules to facilitate them. And the exchanges, both of them, the ASX and uh, CBOE or CBO, are in the process of finalising their listing rule changes and they're going to require ASIC approval. And when this happens, we'll see a key impediment to listing crypto-based ETFs lifted. But there's actually a, there's a second impediment to launching any crypto-based ETFs at the, at the moment, and this has been in the press, and I think it's, it's quite interesting, that all of the clearing of listed products in Australia is done by ASX Clear, which is a, a company within the ASX group of companies. And ASX Clear are in the process of consulting with clearing participants about the clearing requirements for crypto-based ETFs. And due to the volatility of cryptocurrencies, ETFs with crypto as the underlying are expected to be similarly volatile. The whole point is that they very faithfully track a given crypto index. ASX Clear has assessed the degree of volatility as requiring very significant collateral to be provided by clearing participants for each trade. And it, it's really so significant as to call into question the commercial viability of trading for the clearing participants. So this consultation process by ASX Clear is expected to have some weeks to run. And until it's resolved, none of the new products can be launched. So it's a, a watch this space for the time being. But we do expect that come March or so, there will be several crypto-based ETFs launched and available for trading. Thanks, Jeremy. That's a really, really helpful update. Always a lot going on in Australia. For my second question, I just want to turn to the topic of the month card that we've produced. And in that, we mentioned the Select Committee on Australia as a technological and financial centre and its report into digital assets, markets and regulation. 
For many, perhaps one of the most surprising recommendations was the creation of a new type of organization for decentralized autonomous organizations. Could you tell our listeners a little bit more about this particular proposal? Yeah, sure. And I did find the the Senate report's recommendation on decentralized autonomous organizations surprising, as you say. The report's Australia's first major attempt to grapple with what regulation we ought to have for digital assets and markets. At the moment, there's very little regulation applying directly to crypto or digital assets, and it's a matter of seeking to work out how existing financial services and securities law applies. So the Senate report is very significant and has um, really quite a number of recommendations in it. It it really wasn't on my radar, though, that the report would have anything to say about decentralised autonomous organisations or DAOs, as they're known for short. And the report actually recommends the creation of a new type of corporate structure, especially for DAOs. For those that are new to them, DAOs are described as a type of organisation that is represented by rules encoded in a computer program. Its financial transactions and these rules are maintained on a blockchain. Uh, So it's a a type of organisation that exists without uh, human managerial input from day to day and yet is capable of a type of decision making and, and a type of taking a direction Now, the report recommends treating DAOs as legal people in the same way that natural people, real people like you and I are, and companies are. It says that a company-like structure for DAOs would be intended to clarify the roles and liabilities of actors involved in DAOs, as well as governance requirements and other obligations. And that's, in a sense, what we get from the regulation of normal companies. Now, the, the report's recommendation intends to increase certainty for innovators and investors who are using these structures with a view to driving innovation and economic activity in Australia. However, um, giving DAOs legal personality, effectively giving them uh, a similar legal status as companies and natural people, as I've said, would be an extraordinary extension of the concept of corporate existence. I mean, these organisations are, by their nature, not intended to be subject to control by individuals. And part of the basis of company law, as we know it, is that there are individuals who are accountable for the actions of the company. The whole of that personal liability regime for directors and for officers is directed at that. But a a DAO is designed to be operated, as I said, without human managerial activity. And another feature of companies is that must ultimately be owned by natural people, that somewhere at the end of the corporate chain, there is a real person or people. And the company exists for their benefit and its officers' duties are framed around uh, that that concept. Don't, don't get me wrong, I'm not a, a naysayer on DAOs, and they may well come into their own uh, in the future, but as I've said, it's surprising that the Senate report recommends granting legal personality to them because they are just so different to real natural people or companies. And having a, a legal personality gives an entity tremendous rights and powers. And it's a very significant privilege, I think, and that therefore I think that much more thought needs to be given to the implications of it before we go down that path. 
Simon. Thanks, Jeremy. That's really, really interesting. Uh, and that's just my final question. Um, since the publication of the report, have we heard anything further from the Australian government? So we have. Um, the key government reaction to the report is contained in a speech by our federal treasurer on the 8th of December, so going back a couple of months now. And in that speech, the treasurer declares that in relation to crypto, by mid-2022, the Australian government will have completed consultation on the establishment of a licensing framework for digital currency exchanges and also finalised consultation on a custody or depository regime for businesses that hold crypto assets on behalf of consumers. So the, a couple of, of key recommendations from the report regarding regulating digital currency exchanges and a custody regime for kind of anyone that holds crypto assets for another person are expected to be uh, thought about and uh, a policy position consulted on within the next three or four months. And the Treasurer also declared that by the end of 2022, the government will have received a report from the Board of Taxation on an appropriate framework for the taxation of digital transactions and assets. And this is going to be really very significant in either facilitating or stymieing the uh, transactions in digital assets that uh, at present, um, cryptocurrencies are not like um, regular currencies, but as far as the tax man is concerned, they are like any other capital gains tax asset, and uh, therefore people can be assessed on the uh, the gains that they receive when uh, training in those uh, in those assets. Also, by the end of 2022, the government will have undertaken a mapping exercise on existing cryptocurrencies and tokens, and will be aiming to better inform consumers and others of the risks and benefits involved in, in cryptocurrencies. And lastly, it will um, have examined the potential of, uh, of DAOs, as we've just been talking about, and how DAOs might be incorporated into Australia's legal and financial regulatory frameworks. So not a wholehearted embrace of the idea of giving DAOs legal personality, but at least uh, an acknowledgement that the government intends to look at that by the end of the year. So I think you can take from the, the, the speech and the pronouncement that the government is broadly supportive of the recommendations in the Senate report. And it's obvious from the Senate report that much, much more work is required to develop the regulatory frameworks that it contemplates, that the Senate report is a really very early stage document. It sketches the issues and the current legal framework, and it recommends that new frameworks be developed to better regulate the issues. But there's, there's very little meat on the bones of, uh, of the type of frameworks that it recommends. So it really will take months and perhaps years to flesh that out. But the Treasurer has now given us a, a timetable for some of those actions and we'll be eagerly awaiting the, the first instalments expected in the middle of this year. Simon. Thanks, Jeremy. That's been really, really helpful. Always a pleasure to catch up with you. Thanks, Simon. That's great. In this section of the podcast, we now move to the United States, where I'm very pleased that we're joined by Glenn Barentine of Council. Glenn, many thanks for being here. I just wanted to start with some news I saw last night, that it seems like the Treasury Department is considering bringing back the proposed unhosted crypto wallet rule. 
What's that all about? Yes, I mean, that's right. They've, um, they, have, they have notified the public that they intend to bring that back. So they're doing a couple of different things in the crypto space. One is they intend to issue a revised proposal to clarify the meaning of money as used in the bank in the rules of the Bank Secrecy Act, um, which require financial institutions such as banks and brokerage firms and others to collect, retain, and transmit information on certain fund transfers and transmittals of funds. So this is the rule in the United States that requires reporting of transactions or you know uh, deposits, et cetera, in ten thousand dollars or more. And what they want to do is they want to expand the definition of money so that the rules apply to um, convertible virtual currency, so a medium of exchange such as cryptocurrency. And so, you know, the, the purpose of this is to start taking the traditional rules regarding reporting of transactions and applying them to the crypto space as more people are using cryptocurrency as that becomes a larger part of the economy. So that's one thing they're looking to do. And then, uh, as you mentioned, FinCEN, which is a bureau of the U.S. Treasury and is the agency in the United States that administers the Bank Secrecy Act and the money laundering rules, FinCEN is proposing to amend the um, regulations that would basically require transactions involving convertible virtual currencies or digital assets with legal tender status. So, you know, a long-winded way of saying cryptocurrencies held in unhosted wallets or held in wallets hosted in a jurisdiction identified by FinCEN. So, uh, you know, a, a jurisdiction where I guess there's, there's, anti, there's money laundering concerns, but basically an unhosted wallet is a, ho a wallet that's not hosted by a financial institution. And so what they would do is impose customer identification requirements on transactions in unhosted wallets. So that way, again, it's a, it's a way of starting to get their arms around money flows through cryptocurrencies, um, who these people are, who are the customers, um, identifying these customers, tax reporting would follow from that, all kinds of things, but just bringing it into the financial services. So they proposed that again. Uh, I think this was proposed last year. Um, there's been a you know, period of time since the um, comment period expired, and now they've come back and said, no, they're still planning um, on going forward with this. So we'll wait and see what they repropose. Thanks, Glenn. That's really interesting. Another thing I've heard is that the Biden administration is preparing to release a government-wide strategy to regulate cryptocurrencies. Do you have any more intel for us on this? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, a government-wide strategy may be a little bit of an overstatement, um, at least in the short term. What the news reports are saying is that the Biden administration is expected to release an executive order on crypto in February, early February, although I don't think we've seen anything um, as, of, as of today, as of this morning. Um, the order is supposed to detail the government's strategy on cryptocurrency, and the order, as at least reported in the press, is supposed to require the regulators, the relevant regulators, Treasury and the Fed and the Securities and Exchange Commission, commodities, 
Futures Trading Commission, et cetera, all the financial regulators, various bank regulators as well, um, to come back over the course of the first half of the year um, with reports and uh, that will help set policies and regulation of digital assets. So I think what's happening here, at least what, what it would appear to me, is that the Biden administration has said, look, we really need to have a central strategy. Um, we can't have all these different regulatory agencies kind of going off on their own and, and doing one thing or another. They need to work together. We need to have a central strategy, and we need to take control of that central strategy from the White House. Um, and so in a way, what I would expect, or at least based on kind of my experiences, in a way, this is just going to slow things down because everything will kind of come to a little bit of a halt as the agencies now start cooperating, putting their reports together, making sure that, you know, they're all kind of in lockstep, et cetera. But probably we'll see the Biden uh, executive order sometime this month, probably sometime later this year, we'll start to see um, reports coming out of the, uh, you know, coordinated reports coming out of the regulators, and we'll start to get a better idea of where they are on all of this. So that's something that, um, as I said, in the short term, we should see the Biden report, but probably in the long term, we'll actually, I think, slow things down a little bit. Thanks, Glenn. Uh, certainly something to keep our eye on. Uh, as a final question, I'd just like to move on now to the cross-border regulation of crypto asset platforms. In our global topic of the month card on crypto asset regulation, it's mentioned that US regulation would only apply not only to platforms that operate in the United States, but also to offshore platforms that engage directly. Within that scope, there may be some narrow exemptions. Could you just tell us briefly a little bit more about these narrow exemptions? Uh, yes, yeah, Simon. I mean, in the United States, the regulators typically take an approach that any activity that occurs within the United States or from the United States, within or from the United States, or any activity that is directed to persons resident in the U.S., um, is within their jurisdiction. So this would be citizens and also permanent residents, not people who are temporarily present in the United States. And so that's, that's kind of the regulatory um, scheme and, and tends to be applied very broadly. So within that, we have different regulators and different products, different activities. Um, and so depending upon what the crypto platform is, transacting, it may fall under the securities side, it may fall under the commodities side, it may fall within certain exceptions for virtual currencies, for example, it may not be any of these things. And so depending upon what it is, it may be more or less regulated. So on the, on the securities side, if this was a token that was deemed to be a securities and being transacted on the platform, Essentially, um, the platform, if it was dealing with anyone other than broker dealers, registered broker dealers, or banks that are exempt from the broker dealer registration requirement and acting in that exempt capacity, um, basically the platform would have to register as either an exchange or a 
would have to be um, registered as a broker dealer and then registered as an alternate trading system. If so, securities, the, the exemption such as it is, is very narrow. Uh, if you're dealing directly with U.S. residents, U.S. citizens resident in the United States or other people resident, permanent residents in the United States. On the commodity side, there also would be registration requirements unless it fell into, um, you know, was a, was a virtual currency, which tends to escape most regulation on the commodity side. And I think that's really what most people are relying on currently. Um, but again, it depends on what the products are that are traded on this. So you'd have to kind of go through them on a one by one. And I don't know that the regulators, um, there's a lot of discussion, particularly out of um, Chair Gensler at the SEC about the need to regulate these things. Um, but I think to date, the regulators have kind of had their hands full and have been looking at this uh, in terms of um, actions, enforcement actions against uh, crypto platforms on, on kind of a, um, a triage basis. So they, I think, have been bringing actions where they've seen fraud and other outrageousness um, of that type. But as I said, um, Chair Gensler at the SEC has spoken frequently about the need to uh, further regulate these platforms. So to the extent they do fall in the securities arena, you can expect the SEC, I think, to take a more active role in the future. Thanks, Glenn. Uh, that's great. That's always helpful. We're now going to focus on the United Kingdom, and I'm very pleased to be joined by Albert Weatherall of Council in our London Financial Services team. Albert, many thanks for joining us today. We could, of course, spend hours talking about crypto asset regulation in the United Kingdom, but in the short time available to us, I just want to pick up on three issues. Uh, firstly, when considering setting up a crypto asset business in the UK, firms need to think about many things. But from your experience, when clients and contacts speak to you about this, what is the most important thing to think about? Thanks, Simon, and happy to be here. It's a very good question. And I think principally for the UK, you need to determine whether or not you know, the territoriality of the activity is occurring here or whether we're actually relying on something, you know, another jurisdictional outpost. So, for example, if we are here and the relevant activity is carried on from a registered office uh, in the UK, then we will be in scope of our money laundering regime, uh, which is particularly important for crypto asset businesses because that now addresses custodian wallet providers, so effectively custodians and other, other wallet infrastructure providers, as well as crypto asset exchange providers. And, and, and you know, what we say to clients is, you know, if you're looking to set up a business in the UK now, then you have, you have missed the boat and missed the window for the transitional exemption. So before um, 1st of January 2020, those who had been performing, uh, who've been carrying on crypto asset businesses in the UK before that date had a transitional period to, to move across into the new registration regime. Um, and, and many firms are still working their way through that regime that, that has been impacted and, and pushed back in at various times. Now, at the moment, if you're coming cold into the UK, you don't benefit from that. And so until such time as you are fully registered with the FCA, you cannot go live um, with the relevant product suite if you want to engage in those like custodian wallet or crypto asset exchange type services. And so, you know, similar to an authorization type timeframe, what we say to clients is, you know, if you do want to get launched in the UK for this business model, 
you need to build into the launch timetable the fact that you know you will have to go through that registration process and unlike with you know things like the appointed rep regime which can give people a route to market whilst they wait for a full authorization in the kind of more traditional financial services regime here in the UK the crypto regime doesn't really have anything akin to that and so you know what we say to clients is don't expect to roll up into the UK and then be immediately able to launch this type of business if this is what you want to do. You need to think carefully about that launch time frame. Make sure the application is, is as good as you can make it and hope for then you know, a, a fairly you know, expedited process because you've put the work in. But you know, they have to be prepared for the fact that the application of those rules, the scale-up of the compliance framework and the clearance for the registration from the FCA is going to take some time and that will inevitably impact their ability to launch you know, in, perhaps in the timeframes that they have initially thought when they're looking to launch in the UK. Thanks, Albert. Uh, my second question is this. Uh, the UK has quite a vibrant crypto lending ecosystem, uh, but the position with respect to insolvency, insolvency law in the context of collateral, particularly in cross-border transactions, is still, for some, unclear. What are your thoughts on this? And also, do you agree that it's still unclear? Yeah, I think I think it's becoming clearer, but I think you know we, we are getting to a place in the UK where we have a greater degree of certainty as to how, from a legal standpoint, we treat crypto custody, sorry, crypto assets, uh, which may be lodged as collateral to facilitate trading activities, so or other loans. So if you think about um, some of the developments in the space, so the the UK Jurisdictional Task Force published a paper, and, and whilst that you know, is not necessarily binding on the courts, I have seen it referenced by the, court, the UK courts. So I think clearly, you know, along with other forms of guidance, it's seen as quite an influential paper. And that paper concludes that you know, crypto assets aren't really shows as in action, and they're also not really shows as in possession. They're kind of a hybrid form of property, but they should be you know, recognized as a form of property nonetheless. And we have seen some evolving case law in the UK where people are looking for, you know, sort of disclosure orders and freezing orders in respect of certain crypto assets and certain crypto asset wallets with, you know, the relevant courts kind of being minded to follow the view in the jurisdictional task force paper that it is property. And therefore, as property, it can be subject to the same, you know, legal constructs and the legal rights that other forms of property that you know that that we would very clearly know to be property can also be subject. So I think from a UK standpoint, uh, you know, I would be surprised if you know in the insol in a relevant insolvency scenario, it was determined that you know the collateral was not appropriate property and couldn't then be liquidated and addressed, and you know security interests in collateral and other things were not held to be valid. I think where we're at is until such time as we see a kind of meaningful high court case on this point, until we have a really sense of what the, the precedent for this would be in an insolvency scenario for a UK-based firm or a UK-based collateral taker, I think we're, we're not going to be able to say with certainty exactly how the courts would um, approach it. But I do think, you know, based on the market sentiment, what people think about the UK is that obviously we have obviously very strong and well-founded insolvency law regime, and the, the, the workings of some cases coming through the courts on these points at the moment, I think are giving people some comfort that as a jurisdiction, the UK is, is probably more likely than most to respect crypto assets as property and therefore to honour and be able to enforce various security interests in that in those crypto assets. Thanks, Albert. Um, as a final question, I just want to finish on the recent papers that HM Treasury and the FCA published 
on crypto assets and the financial promotion regime. There isn't time to go into these papers in depth here, but if there was one key point that you wanted to draw our listeners' attention to, what would it be? I think the key point for me is, is more of a macro point connected to these papers, which is that the, the, the tide of regulation, I think, in the UK is turning with respect to crypto assets. So, you know, we've already seen uh, the FCA move to prohibit, you know, crypto derivatives and ETNs with crypto in the lines. We're now seeing a tightening on financial promotions, um, you know, and we're, we're seeing additional regulatory work in this space. Uh, you know, in an effort to uh, try to control and limit you know, the perceived risk and, and the potential for consumer harm. I think we're also seeing that being borne out in the interactions, you know, that various persons in the markets are having with, with the regulators uh, on, you know, their attitudes towards crypto and, and how the regulatory regime for crypto is evolving. And I think, therefore, for me, I think this is an indication of the fact that, you know, particularly in the context of retail-focused propositions, I think we are moving towards a position where there is increasing regulation. And I think that the regulators have concluded inherently that these products are not capable of being understood or the risks are not capable of being appropriately perceived by most, if not all, retail customers. And so I think the policy objectives and the policy proposals that we're seeing coming out are, I think, reflective of that baseline assumption. So I think takeaway is that you know, the UK has to date had a fairly facilitative approach to regulation with respect to crypto assets, but it would not surprise me over the course of the next year or two if we see you know, a greater degree of regulation in the space. And I think the papers on the FinProms regime and, and other, other statements that are being put out by Treasury and the FCA are indicative of that, of that sort of turning tide of regulation in the space. Thanks, Albert. It's always great to, to get your insight. That's been great. In this part of the podcast, we're going to move to the Netherlands. Many of our listeners will know that the Netherlands has not implemented specific legislation dealing with crypto assets, opting instead to rely on the current Dutch Act on the financial supervision and measures implementing the Fifth Money Laundering Directive. The Netherlands wants European-wide rules regulating crypto assets in order to create a level playing field within the EU. I'm now delighted to be joined by Nicolai de Conning, a senior associate in our Global Financial Services Group based in Amsterdam. Nicolai, it's really great to have you with us today. And I know you're doing a lot of work in the crypto asset area. Perhaps to start off with, could you just tell our listeners a little bit more as to what you're seeing in the Dutch market generally? Hi, Simon. Yes, of course. Um, well, thanks for the opportunity to speak on this very interesting topic. Um, yeah, well, there's obviously uh, a lot to say given all that has happened and is still coming our way when it comes to crypto assets. Um, but I think maybe a start uh, similar to, I think, man many European jurisdictions is that we've clearly been seeing a, a continued growth of the interest in crypto assets from consumers, financial institutions, uh, industry associations, such as the, let's say, the Dutch Banking Association in the Netherlands. Uh, and of course, from our uh, two financial regulators, uh, the Dutch Authority for the Financial Markets, the AFM, um, and the Dutch Central Bank, DNB. And I think it's fair to say that crypto assets are more and more being considered as a new asset class and that the crypto market is maturing, uh, but that uh, technological and legal challenges continue to exist. Um, yeah, and I do believe that 
the reasons for the growing interest in crypto assets in the Netherlands, but maybe more generally, are different for consumers uh, slash crypto investors on the one hand, and uh, most financial institutions, uh, industry associations, and regu regulators on the other hand. And I think, in my view, this also follows from an interesting report that was fairly recently published by the AFM in December of last year. It provides some helpful insight into the mindset of crypto consumers uh, and investors. Um, and the report I'm referring to that, that basically contains the results of an investigation into the attitude of Dutch crypto asset owners. And uh, the main focus of the report was on what type of crypto assets are owned, how and why were they bought, uh, what, are, what are people's perception on the risk associated with crypto assets. Uh, so definitely an interesting read. Uh, and without wanting to dive too much detail, I think it's interesting to see that the main risks identified by consumers seem to be at least in part largely aligned with those of other market parties, such as financial institutions and the regulators. Um, for example, the volatile nature of crypto assets, the potential for a crash, uh, cybersecurity, uh, slash theft risks, fraud, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the reasons um, that are given for wanting to buy or invest in crypto assets, so sort of the benefits, so to say, they don't seem to really match the potential uh, benefits which are most commonly named by the uh, financial institutions and regulators. Uh, so according to report, most crypto owners, they, I believe it's over 50%, uh, they said that the main reason for buying crypto assets is to take a gamble. Um, and another large reason was um, the low interest rate. So trying to get to gain profits and especially significant profits. Um, well, and that doesn't seem to fully rhyme with the benefits, uh, benefits which are most commonly uh, identified by other market parties, including, for example, also the, the European Commission. And well, obvious potential benefits which are often named are that, that, that crypto assets and underlying um, uh, technologies, they can be an important driver for innovative digital finance. Uh, they can lead to more efficiency and financial inclusion. Um, um, and, and, and ultimately, they can also, for example, allow for less burdensome and more inclusive ways of financing um, um, small and medium-sized enterprises. But besides this um, investigation report I just mentioned, there have been many other interesting um, publications and developments when it comes to crypto assets. Um, I think leaving aside what happened, what's happening at the European level, uh, which is of course also going to impact the Dutch crypto markets, such as the, all the progress that's being made with the uh, proposed regulation on the, the marks of crypto assets, uh, MICA and uh, the new AML and CFD package. Uh, there, there, there are also certainly developments at the national level here. Um, and maybe sort of tying back to what you already um, said with regard to the Netherlands, um, before I move on to some specific developments is, as I said, there have been many warnings and cautions issued by the Dutch regulators regarding crypto assets over the last years. Um, that, that there are no plans to ban crypto assets in the Netherlands or to introduce a Dutch national crypto specific uh, regulatory regime. Um, I think the only crypto specific rules we currently have in the Netherlands are the, the AML rules, which are based on the fifth money laundering directive, uh, which apply to the um, crypto service providers. Um, and that this basically means that crypto assets and related service and activities are currently only regulated if they fall within the, the remit of these AML rules, um, or if they fit within the scope of the existing uh, supposedly technology neutral uh, 
uh, Dutch and European financial regulatory rules, uh, like the, the Act on the Financial Supervision, or um, at the European level, for example, the Prospectus Regulation. Um, so basically, cryptocurrencies, they remain unregulated in the Netherlands, unless they fall within the remit of the AML rules, or if they, for example, qualify as a security or a uh, financial instrument on the MIFID, uh, for example. Uh, this will all obviously change once um, regulatory frameworks uh, specifically tailored to crypto assets, such as MICA, uh, start to apply in the Netherlands. But until now, it's uh, um, there's still not a lot of regulation. Um, I think another thing I think is good to emphasize is that the, the Dutch regulators have not been sitting on their hands when it comes to crypto assets. Um, like I said, uh, many warnings, uh, many um, many initiatives um, and market research conducted by or uh, on behalf of the regulators. And I think we're now seeing that some of the skepticism and um, hesitation of the regulators around crypto assets is sort of giving way to the regulation of crypto assets and crypto service providers. Um, and the, the Dutch regulators seem to recognize that cryptos are here to stay and that regulation uh, is the way to go. Um, and I think DFM and DNB are also certainly trying to help market parties when it comes to crypto assets. Uh, so for example, um, AFM and uh, DNB, they launched the Innovation Hub back in 2016, um, which is basically a joint information desk led by the regulators, um, which provides support to businesses with, uh, which have uh, innovative ideas and innovative uh, financial products and services. Um, and they've been, uh, so, so this desk has been receiving and answering uh, an increased number of questions in relation to crypto assets. So I think that's that's a, that's a good development. Um, and I I think in terms of investigations and publications, I already mentioned the AFM uh, investigation into um, the attitude of crypto owners. But another interesting uh, study uh, concerned financial influencers, and more often I think referred to as finfluencers. Uh, there's a fairly recent study from December last year as well. Um, and it, although this study from the FM doesn't only cover fee influencers in relation to crypto assets, it's it's clear that in the Netherlands and I, that crypto assets are becoming more and more popular in these types of promotions by influencers, for example, on posts on social media, etc. Um, and according to the AFM, this does certainly does not always happen in compliance with applicable rules. Um, and I think the most prominent example of that is that if uh, influencers promote, for example, crypto derivatives, um, which I see as a category or maybe subcategory of crypto assets, uh, for example, a Bitcoin future or an uh, Ethereum option, um, that those influencers are likely to be providing investment advice, which in the Netherlands, and I think most in the, throughout the EU, uh, means you would need to get an investment firm license to be allowed to do that. And DFM has made it clear that we'll be actively monitoring for influencers uh, in this regard. And yeah, I expect that DFM will, starting, will start taking enforcement action uh, sooner rather than later. And maybe moving to the other Dutch regulators, so DNB, the Dutch Central Bank, um, they are on the AML rules, the, the regulator uh, responsible for uh, the registration and supervision of crypto service providers in the Netherlands, uh, they've also been very active. There's been a very interesting court decision in a case between DNB and a crypto service provider um, in relation to certain wallet verification measures on the Dutch sanctions legislation. 
um, which was which case was won by the CryptoSurf provider, uh, following which DNB uh, changed its policy on um, the screening of relationships in uh, incoming and outgoing customer transactions in cryptocurrencies. And, and besides that, DNB has also published some warnings, uh, naming specific CryptoSurf providers uh, targeting the Netherlands without being registered. Um, and they've also published a number of Q and A's on topics um, which are relevant to uh, crypto service providers. Some of which are also published for public consultation. As a final point, I think I would like to mention uh, something that probably doesn't come as a surprise in light of what I just already told. But um, crypto assets—they—they they, they form a part of the AFMs and DMB supervisory agenda for the coming years. So. Um, especially MICA is expected to bring about a, a significant change and definitely more activity from the regulators in the um, crypto assets arena. And then it will perhaps then as a final final point, um, the AFM has made it pretty clear also in its uh, trend monitor uh, 2022 um, that it has some doubts as to whether uh, MICA in its current form uh, will be enough. Um, according to the AFM, uh, they said, the proposal is a, a compromise between mitigation of risk and proportional market regulation. And they believe that the rules regarding a duty of care and uh, product development are missing. Um, uh, while obviously they believe those are very, they are, are extremely important for uh, an adequate protection of consumers. So um, I don't expect that that's going to mean we are going to have Dutch specific rules, but it, I, I do think that the AFM is going to be playing an active role um, in making sure that uh, consumer interests are taken into account in the Netherlands. Thanks, Nicolai. That's a very comprehensive and very helpful overview of what's going on um, in the Netherlands. Um, I just had one other question uh, for you. Um, in our Global Topic of the Month card, uh, which focuses on crypto asset regulation, um, in reference to crypto exchanges, you mentioned that the term bilateral is used more loosely than in the traditional sense. Can you just give our listeners a little bit more information as to what you mean by that? Uh, yes, yes, of course. Um, yeah, I think the interesting thing there is that, let's say in a traditional context, so in relation to the, the, well, the types of trading venues, which are uh, primarily regulated on the MIFID and MIFIR, um, the word exchange um, implies there is uh, multilaterality. Uh, um, but I think that the crypto world uses this term more loosely in the sense that perhaps um, some crypto exchanges actually, in fact, work on a bilateral or at least partly bilateral basis rather than a um, multilateral basis. Um, it will, of course, ultimately depend on how a crypto exchange functions operationally. But so let's say, is it a centralized exchange or a decentralized exchange, uh, for example? But ultimately, if the system doesn't allow for the interaction of um, multiple third-party buying and selling trading interests, um, but instead matches trading interests on the bilateral basis, this would, in a traditional context, um, generally not be considered an exchange. So I think in the place card, we wanted to put emphasis on, on that the, 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 the word exchange is um, um, used more loosely. And I think you could also have a whole separate discussion on whether uh, dis distributed um, ledger systems, uh, regardless of their underlying technology, could be viewed as always being multilateral or always being bilateral. 
but I think that's a whole separate techno technological discussion, and that's not that's not the point we wanted to make in uh, in in the players card. So I, I yeah, I think what I just explained sort of sees um, to what we wanted to indicate um, in our uh, uh, Netherlands specific piece. That, that's great. And as a last question, and also keeping with the theme of crypto exchanges, um, in terms of legal documentation. What are some of the more interesting differences when you compare crypto exchanges to more traditional exchanges? Um, yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, I think it's uh, widely recognized by most market parties, uh, but I, I believe also by ESMA that um, exchanges in the crypto space can look quite different when you compare them to traditional securities and derivatives exchanges. I think an important difference there is the accessibility of crypto exchanges. So traditional exchanges or trading venues, they are generally only accessible to larger institutions, um, mainly a result of regulatory requirements that apply to such exchanges. Um, while crypto exchanges, they offer generally offer direct access to almost anyone, in particular consumers, um, without the need to intermediate trading through, bo uh, through brokers or participants. Um, but you can also think of other relevant differences, um, such as that crypto exchanges, they do not tend to have clearing and settlement functions, uh, but also that traditional exchanges tend to have a fairly extensive set of legal documentations, which um, apply to their members and participants, um, rule books generally. And with traditional exchanges, you, there tends to be a single contracting party and uh, a single governing law, um, etc. But with crypto exchanges, this, this can be a bit more fluid in the sense that uh, you may well be contracting with several parties based in um, several jurisdictions with uh, different governing laws and, 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 and legal documentation tends to be different from, from the tra traditional exchanges. And I think as a final point, I believe that crypto exchanges, they tend to offer a wider range of services than traditional exchanges. Um, so for example, um, some crypto exchanges, they also offer safekeeping services. They, they handle client funds, um, they lend, they borrow, you name it. And um, some market parties actually believe that this uh, multifaceted role uh, may lead to a conflict of interest. Uh, so for example, it has been said that rather than being a neutral party to transactions like a traditional exchange, uh, a crypto exchange can, for example, trade against customers, uh, which can create a situation where uh, for one side to win, the other must lose, um, meaning that retail clients, uh, consumers are at the risk of being treated unfairly. Yeah, I think in the end, it, sort of all of this makes it clear that even though the crypto world is using a well-established concept uh, and trading model, um, that it has certainly adapted this model and it continues to do so to make it work for its own uh, purposes. That's great, Nikolai. Thank you so much for joining us today. That's been a really interesting overview of the Dutch market. Thank you, Simon. Great being here.